Well, good morning. We are back together again this morning for another round of these Q&A sermons. This is where we're taking a short break from our regular time going verse by verse through Matthew's gospel. In order to answer some of the thoughtful questions you all submitted over the past several weeks, it's something I like to do just from time to time for the benefit of the church body. And I hope and trust that the answers will prove edifying to all of you, even if you didn't submit one of the questions. Of course, I want all of you to be Bereans where you're studying God's word on your own. You're answering your own questions. But at the same time, sometimes we need help. In turn, God has gifted certain men to rightly divide the word and feed the word to the people. And First Timothy 5.17 holds in high regard those elders who work hard at teaching and preaching. And sometimes we need a teacher. We can benefit from a teacher, one who can explain, help explain God's word to us. On top of that, one of my goals, though, is not just to give you all the answers to your questions, but also to provide a a bit of an explanation. I want you to see for yourself how we study and reason through the scriptures to find answers. That your confidence is not in me or a preacher, but in God's word, which is clear. So, we have a lot to cover today. Without further ado, we're going to jump into it. all, uh, All of you submitted many questions, found a few themes for our time this morning. Uh, We have six questions in total. Three pertain to matters of the Trinity. Three pertain to matters of women. So, probably goes without saying, this will be the most confusing Q&A sermon ever. Not sure which topic will be more confusing. But we'll begin with this one. First couple on the Trinity. Question one. During Christ's earthly ministry, were there things that God the Father hid from him? During Christ's earthly ministry, were there things that God the Father hid from him? Were there things Jesus didn't know until it was time for him to know? His question gets at the relationship between Father and Son during Christ's earthly ministry, as well as his omniscience. I mean, the Bible clearly teaches that God is omniscient, meaning he possesses all knowledge. And Jesus, being God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, likewise possesses omniscience. Philippians 2.6 attests that the Son was equal to God. But these facts lead many Bible readers to confusion, especially when they come across this one verse. Speaking of his second coming, Jesus says, Matthew 24, verse 36. He says, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So here Jesus is confessing there's something he doesn't know, namely the precise timing of his own return. And so how can this be? If he's omniscient, how can this be? Well, the answer to that comes in better understanding the incarnation. The eternal son of God certainly possessed the attribute of omniscience. That attribute was never lost or changed or turned off. But during the incarnation, Philippians 2, as as it continues, The Son added to himself a human nature, came to earth taking on human form. And so in Jesus, we see two natures, one divine, one human, united in one person. And the divine nature of Jesus has the the fullness of divine attributes. The human nature, meanwhile, was truly human. His human nature was not omniscient or omnipresent or omnipotent. It was a true human nature. How do these two natures coexist in one person? That's, that's part of the mystery. But we can say this, that during his time on earth, part of his humility was in allowing his divine nature to be veiled 
that he might live as a man. In submission to the Father's plan, Jesus lived as a man. He experienced human life under the limitations of his human attributes. As it said on earth, during his time on earth, his divine nature was possessed but not expressed. This explains verses like Luke 2.52, which says that as a youth, Jesus grew in wisdom. Or Matthew 4.2, Jesus became tired, or rather hungry. And John 4.6, he became tired. None of these are even possible for his divine nature. These all pertain to his human nature. And so while his divine nature always possessed omniscience, his human nature never did. And since during his time on earth, he was living as a man, that means Jesus had to learn things. He had to learn to read, to write. He had to learn everything like a man. Now, how did he learn spiritual things? Well, he learned through scripture, going to synagogue. He learned through God's working in his own life. Most of all, though, he he did learn through the Holy Spirit. Though living on earth as a man, Jesus was the ultimate spirit-filled man, even from birth. And while not relying on his divine omniscience or living life, he did live relying on the spirit. And that put him in immediate contact with the mind of God. This is how Jesus at times displayed supernatural knowledge. Like John chapter 4, he knew the full history of the woman at the well. Or John 6, he knew from the beginning who would betray him. He says in John 15, 15, he says, All things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Living as a man, he was dependent on God's revelation, yes. But it appears he had plenty of it. He was in direct communion with God the Father through God the uh, the Spirit, and the Father revealed many things to him. This is why we see like no hint of an identity crisis in Jesus. He knew from the beginning he was the Messiah. He knew his identity. He knew his mission, his earthly mission. Uh, That was never in doubt. So regarding this question then, were were there things God the Father hid from the Son or or didn't reveal to the Son during his time on earth? The answer is not much. You see, Jesus, he knows the full scope of his death, his resurrection. He knows all things about his future return and reign. He seems to know all of God's word and will. In fact, the only example we have otherwise is Matthew 24, 36, the timing of his return. The reason for that is another question. This person didn't ask that question. But it may be that the father wanted the son to model faithfulness and watchfulness, which his disciples would certainly need. But again, that is another question. Question two. Was Jesus sent by God the Father, or did he come on his own? Person mentioning, there seem to be Bible verses suggesting both. Was Jesus sent by God the Father, or did he come on his own? You can open your Bibles to John chapter 4 while we get into this. Here's another question relating to the relationship between the Father and the Son during Christ's time on earth. Was Jesus sent by the Father, or did he come on his own? And there's more to this answer than you might think. So you start in John 4. I want to show you first just how often Jesus himself states that he was sent by the Father. And really to Jesus, this was an essential truth that the Messiah was sent. That came from heaven, was sent by God. And so real quick, look at this, John 4, 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of 
of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John chapter 5, verse 30. He said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 6, verse 38. He says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. That's, that's a quick sampling. There are over two dozen times in the Gospels where Jesus attests. He did not come to do his own will. He did not come on his own. He was sent by the will of the Father. And so scripture consistently teaches Jesus was sent by God. When the fullness of time came, Galatians 4.4, 4, God sent forth his son. This is one of the distinct roles God the Son would play. And so to answer the question, yes, Jesus was sent by God the Father. But there's something to clarify here, a little add-on. Namely, don't get the impression that God the Father and God the Son have two different wills. In another sense, you could say it was the Son's own will that he came to earth. And that's because there's only one divine will. In other words, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they do not have three separate wills. Rather, the three persons in the Godhead fully subsist in in one single undivided nature. There's only one God. There's only one divine essence. And as such, there's only one divine will. That means the will of the Father is the same as the will of the Son and the Spirit. By virtue of sharing the same divine nature, their wills are not divided but united. Yes, we see that the three persons of the Trinity take on different roles in relation to mankind. For example, it's only the Son who becomes incarnate. But all this took place according to the shared single divine will of the triune God. Now, if that's the case, though, you you might wonder if if the Father and the Son, as as the Godhead, have the same divine will. What do we make of all these verses where Jesus appears to have his own will distinct from the Father? How can he pray, not my will, but your will be done? How can he say, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me? The answer here comes when you realize this is Jesus speaking according to his human will. You see, when God the Son became incarnate and took on a human nature, guess what comes with a human nature? A human will. So as the God-man, Jesus now is one person who possesses two natures, one human, one divine. That means he has two wills, one human, one divine. Now, furthermore, while on earth, As we said before, Jesus was living according to his human nature. And like we said of his divine nature, it was always possessed, but it was not expressed. It was veiled in his humanity. The same goes for his divine will. He's possessed, but not expressed. He was living according to human will. Jesus, as the eternal son of God, has the same will as the father. But living as a man, he had a separate will. It is, however, this will that Jesus says he puts in full submission to the Father. 
Jesus reveals that as the God-man, that he is the Messiah. He came from heaven. His work was only to do that which had been willed by the Father. His own human initiative, his own human will, his own human desires, even for something like bread, was all subservient to the Father's will. He came to do the Father's will entirely and to live by God's will. If any of this becomes confusing to you, that, that's kind of just what happens when you have a God who is three in one, you have a Savior who is two in one, fully God, fully man. But our goal is always with these questions, just let's just say what Scripture says. And let's go as far as Scripture reveals. That being said, here, let's not overlook an important point of reflection as you consider Christ and his will in relation to God. That we now, as his disciples, we are to emulate the man Christ Jesus and lay down our own wills in submission to God. Later in John 17, you can turn there real quick if you're, you're still in John. This is the high priestly prayer. Uh, five or six times in this prayer, he mentions he was sent from God. But notice how he adds something. Verse 4, he says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. But after this, he goes on to pray for his disciples, and he prays for us. He prays for those who had come to believe in him through his disciples. That's us. Look down at verse 18. He says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And by way of reflection, realize now we are the sent ones. We should be the ones saying, like Jesus, that our perfect human example as the God-man we should be the ones saying our food is to do the will of the one who sent me, uh, sent us. Our will, uh, food is to accomplish the work God has given us to do. And granted, we're not sent from heaven on a messianic mission, but he's still given us work to do. And as we submit to God's revealed will for our lives and represent the Lord, so Jesus, as he prays in this chapter, that the world may know that God sent him. That's, that's part of our mission now, to let the world know that God sent Jesus. He is the divine son, the only savior. And so may we now be faithful to the will of the one who sent us. Okay, question three. Question three, if the members of the Godhead have different functions, do they have different capabilities? If the members of the Godhead have different functions, do they have different capabilities? person asks, for example, are all three members of the Godhead omnipresent? So here's just a question directly about the nature of the Trinity itself. So I probably need to, at this point, just define the, the doctrine of the Trinity. Now you might know the word Trinity is never used in the Bible, but it's a fitting title for the teaching on the nature of God that is in the Bible, how God reveals his existence, his nature to us. You put it all together, this doctrine of the Trinity is formed by just the three biblical assertions put together. There's the Trinity. Three biblical assertions. First, that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. That God eternally exists as three persons. Second, each person is fully God. But third, there's only one God. Each of these three assertions is just fully supported and taught by Scripture. Although that's not what we're trying to show right here. This question really pertains to that second assertion, which says each person is fully God. And so we ask, do the three persons of the Godhead have different capabilities, different attributes? 
The answer to that question is no, by definition. There's only one divine essence, which is made known by all of these divine attributes. This would include omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, eternality, love, righteousness, justice, so forth. And if, if one of the triune persons lacked one of these attributes, well, simply put, that person would not be divine. That person would not be fully God. There, there would be no doctrine of the Trinity. If scripture taught that the Father was omnipotent or even more powerful than the Son or the Spirit, you could no longer say the Son or the Spirit are divine. They're not fully God. Obviously, they would be less than God because they don't possess the divine attribute of omnipotence. You can't say that any one member of the Trinity is more powerful, more loving, more wise than any other, and nor does Scripture ever speak like that or teach that. Instead, Scripture shows the opposite. Again, it's beyond our scope here, but you actually go and study all the verses that show the deity of the Son and the deity of the Spirit. You find that the Son and the Spirit both possess the gamut of divine attributes. In addition to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit both possess omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, so on and so forth. That, that's precisely where this second uh, assertion comes from. Each of the persons is fully God. That's, just, that's what scripture teaches. Meaning each person can be shown to partake of the divine nature and possess the divine attributes. And keep in mind, each trained person fully shares the divine essence, that there's only one God. The fullness of God is in each of these three persons. They're not each one-third God. They're each God, fully God. And accordingly, each possesses the fullness of divine attributes with no difference. Father, Son, and Spirit are co-eternal and co-equal in every attribute. This is something referred to as their ontological equality. They're, They're the same in essence. Now, since the person's asking these questions about Trinity, we we can add, you know, if the three persons of the Godhead are so equal, what makes them any different? Do they have any meaningful distinction? Yes, hence that first assertion that Scripture teaches God eternally exists as three persons. And the meaningful difference among these persons, according to the Bible, comes down to how they relate to one another and the world. This is reflected even in their main titles, Father, Son, Spirit. As this questioner pointed out, it is correct to say that the members of the Godhead have different functions or roles in relation to the world. This is called their economic subordination. For example, regarding the work of creation, it's the triune work of God, but we see the Father speaking creation into existence. We see the Son carrying out creation decrees and actually making the world while the Spirit sustains the world and manifests God's presence. Regarding the work of salvation, it's the work of the triune God, but we see the Father planning, ordaining, calling some, sending the Son into the world. We see the Son obeying the Father, accomplishing redemption by dying on the cross. We see the Spirit applying redemption and atonement, making people alive. These are all the actions of the one true God expressed in the three persons. To boil it down, we can say again that the three persons of the Trinity share an ontological equality. They're the same in essence, in being, in deity. But they have an economic subordination, meaning that they differ 
and how they relate to one another and the world. We can leave that one there. You know, we're just tackling three questions related to the Trinity like that can start to make your brain hurt. Trinity is a complex subject. The doctrine in Scripture, it's, it's not a contradiction, but it is a paradox. It's beyond the fullness of our grasp. We can grasp it, but we can't grasp all of it within our mind's reach. But we're once again simply bound by what God has revealed in Scripture. This is how he has shown himself, how he exists, how he has enabled us to know him according to our capacity. In a sense, though, I think with the doctrine of the Trinity, there is a comfort. Would you really want to worship a God you could fully comprehend? That would make him no higher than man. That would make him not God, not worthy of worship. But the true God is indeed higher than us creatures. The real marvel is that he allows us and enables us to know him at all. But let's always seek to know God as he reveals himself and worship him. All right, time to switch gears now to a different set of questions. Question number four. What roles can and cannot women hold in our church? What roles can and cannot women hold in our church? The New Testament refers to the church as the body of Christ. It's just one body, but it's a diverse body made up of many different members, each being given a different spiritual gift for the good, for the building up of the body. So you have Ephesians 4, 7, which says each one of us, or to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Or 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And women are most certainly included in this equation. They're equally valid and valuable members of the body of Christ. They're meant to serve the body in a multitude of ways. And there are several examples of them doing so. You have Lydia in Acts uh, Acts 16, showing the gift of hospitality. She hosts the Philippian church. You have Phoebe in Romans 16, who really was a benefactor, a bankroller of many gospel ministers. And she was such a faithful servant that she was entrusted to hand deliver the letter of Romans to Rome. You have Priscilla in Acts 18 with her husband, was a frontline ministry worker with Paul in Corinth, later in Ephesus. So women can and should serve in the local church, contributing to the needs of the body uh, as God has gifted them. Now, there is one important limitation on the roles women can hold in the church, and that would be concerning the office of elder pastor. You can turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, main place for this. 1 Timothy chapter 2. While you're turning, I'm going to read Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. It's where Paul says that God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Earlier in Ephesians 4, revealed how the Lord himself gave spiritual gifts to all his people. But that, those verses 11 and 12 reveal how God gave gifted men to the church as well. These are not spiritual gifts per se. These are offices of the church, roles of leadership in the church, so that the rest of the saints might be further equipped for the work of service. And it was the Lord's will, as well as his prerogative, to limit these offices of leadership to men. 
Now, that is explicitly the case with this office of elder pastor. You see this in 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Here it says, verse 11, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, the context here is church conduct. The first three chapters of 1 Timothy, he's giving him instruction on how the church ought to uh, conduct itself assembled. You see the summary of this in chapter 3, verse 15, before he moves on to the second three chapters. 3.15, he says, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So what Paul says here in 1 Timothy 2, for example, we would not apply this to a secular school. We're dealing expressly in a church context. But, hey, that's the question anyway. How does this relate to the church? And in that regard, Paul Paul says it is not the role of women to teach or exercise authority over men. Immediately after this, it's not a coincidence that he goes on to describe the role of the elder pastor, chapter 3, verse 1, the office of elder, same as pastor, overseer, all the same. And it's very clear that office is for men. He says in chapter 3, verse 2, they must be the husband of one wife. The same throughout. It's the same with Titus chapter 1, same with 1 Peter chapter 5. Wherever the office of elder is discussed, it's very clearly limited to men. It's notable how later in 1 Timothy 3, Paul goes on to address deacons, and he does address women. Verse 11. I would argue that refers to deaconesses. The deacon is a role of service in the church, and there's no reason women can't fulfill that role. Being a deacon does not involve teaching or exercising authority over men in the assembly. I mean, isn't that the main difference in the qualifications uh, between elders and deacons? Only elders are required to be able to teach because it's part and parcel with their role. So after the risen Lord ascended, he gave gifts to all members of his church, but it was his will and again, his prerogative to give leadership roles to faithful men. The Lord appointed qualified men to serve as the under shepherds of his church. The reason for this connects to God's order from creation. Specifically, how he deemed to give headship to man. Headship is all about leadership and authority and direction. And God entrusted those responsibilities in the home and in the church to man. Look at verse 13. You see, Paul gives his own reasoning for his command in verse 12. He says, For it was Adam who was created first, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. See the fact that Paul ties his justification for verse 12 back to creation means you can't just easily dismiss these verses as being cultural, as many try and do. It's just cultural in Ephesus that they don't apply today. But he takes his argument back to pre-fall created order. Now the prohibition of women teaching and exercising authority over men And serving as elder pastors is tied to God's created order. Elsewhere, Paul makes very similar overarching statements about male headship. You don't have to turn there, but listen to 2 Corinthians 11.3. He says, I want you to understand, 
or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 11.3. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. He says in verse 8, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. You read Genesis, man was created first as the head. Woman was created second as a suitable helper. This was God's design. It's reflected in their roles. Now, you read that discussion in 1 Corinthians 11. That's how Paul ties it into his subject matter. In that chapter, it's head coverings for women. Something we're not going to get into today. But don't worry, I actually answered that in a long Q&A several years ago. So that piques your interest. Go get on the website Q&A 14. You want to learn all about head coverings. But it is important to point out that after his argument in 1 Corinthians 11, and Paul provides some balance, lest you think that headship means males are superior or more important than women in God's design. That is not the case. Look what he adds, 1 Corinthians, he says in verses 11 and 12. He says, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. And male headship has nothing to do with status inequality. Man and woman were equally made in God's image. He made them male and female in his image. They have therefore equal worth and value in God's eyes. The Savior's blood was spilled equally to redeem both of them, male and female. Shows you their worth. In fact, you may not realize it, but everything we just studied about the Trinity actually perfectly applies to male and female in the roles. Namely, that God made man and woman with an ontological equality, but an economic subordination. Man and woman are equal in essence, in being, nature, worth. But they were given different roles or functions to play. They have a headship and submission authority structure, just like the one that exists within the Trinity. Right? Then we read the father is the head of the son. The son submits to the father. That does not make them unequal. That does not devalue the son. That, that relationship is part of God's perfections. It's how you, you see perfect order and harmony in diversity. And this perfection is reflected in God's creation of mankind from the beginning by his design. Now, look, we all know that, that the world This whole discussion enrages the world. We know that. Because our society especially has come to radically reject God, his word, his will, his order, all things God. And so any talk of headship or the new S word, the new swear word, submission, that just gives them reason to mock, to ridicule, to scorn, to reject Christianity. And we can show them all we want. Look, no, the Bible still hugely upholds the value and the worth of women. Jesus held women in the highest prominence. But look, we know it's, it's not going to do anything to satisfy the vitriol of the world toward the scriptures on this issue. You have to realize that's just a reflection of the world's rebellion against God, his word, his will, his ways, his created order. 
As for us, though, the thing is, as Christians, we have our own head, male and female. It doesn't matter if you're in the church, this one body, and you have an ultimate head, and that is Christ. He is Lord. And so on this issue, on every issue, the real question is, will you submit to him? This issue, it's, it's too clear in Scripture. This is not a question of what the Bible says. It's a question of, are you trying to please the world or please the Lord? Are you trying to be accepted by the world or accepted by the Lord? We have no choice. We submit to the Lord, to his word, to his will, his ways, his order. And so, to answer the question, at this church, we encourage, we expect women to fully serve with all of their spiritual gifts in all ways. The exception being teaching or exercising authority over men in the assembly. And that includes holding the office of elder pastor. Now, since someone asked this question, I felt obliged to answer this other question from someone else. Question number five. What does 1 Timothy 2.15 mean when it says women will be preserved through childbearing? What does 1 Timothy 2.15 mean when it says women will be preserved through childbearing? Someone just had to ask this question. (laughs) It is one of the the trickiest verses to uh, translate and interpret. Uh, I was thinking it would be so much easier just to skip over this. You never would have known. But look, we're already here in 1 Timothy 2. Someone asked it. I feel we have to tackle it. So let's see if we can make some sense of this, because look at the next verse. We're still in 1 Timothy 2. Look at the last verse in the section, verse 15. He says, after this, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. This verse has been the source of debate for centuries. And it does not help that English translations are all over the map on how they even translate this verse. In fact, most read that women will be saved through childbearing. The word for preserved here is indeed sozo in the Greek, which is ordinarily the word for salvation. But the problem with this verse is you have several key terms that each have a range of meaning. You're trying to figure out like which ones apply and fit the text and the context. There really aren't many good options. You see, obviously, you can't take the predominant meaning of these words. Women will be saved through childbearing. If you take saved in the ordinary sense of salvation, if you take the preposition uh, through, meaning by means of, if you take childbearing as giving birth, well, that means you have Paul teaching not salvation by faith, but salvation by giving birth. But you know that is ridiculously contradictory to the Apostle Paul and everything he teaches everywhere about salvation by faith alone. That's, that's intellectually dishonest. He, he would never teach that. So how about you know, physical safety through physical birth? Because the word for saved can refer to being delivered from harm, from physical harm. So could Paul be saying women will be preserved from the danger of childbirth? And back then had high mortality rates. But this is still nonsensical. It's like lots of women still died in childbirth, Christian women. And, and at the same time, that view has like zero connection to the context. And context is king. But if you take salvation as spiritual, but then you take this word childbearing to refer not to the process of childbearing, but the product of childbearing, meaning the child. 
And childbearing does have the definite article in the Greek in front of it. So you could say women are saved through the birth, obviously implying the birth of the Messiah. Verse 15 actually starts in the singular, so many think it's talking about Eve. This view is it's theologically convenient. We can live with it, like, okay, there's no problems there. But it still doesn't work. This t- term for childbearing is never used like that. And also you can see whatever Paul means in verse 15, it's clearly distinctive to women. But men are saved through the Messiah as well. And in reality, we're not saved through the birth of the Messiah, Paul knows, but through his death and resurrection. Still doesn't quite fit. There are many other possible interpretations. We're not going to labor through them all right now. See if we can take a stab at the solution. Here, I do feel obliged to give a citation to theologian Andreas Kostenberger, who back in the 90s wrote a journal article as I was reading and researching. I think he's the one who cut this the straightest. You start by considering that this unique word for childbearing, technogonia in the Greek. It's a rare word used only one other time in the New Testament. Just so happens to be here in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 5. So go there. This is a little bit later. Paul gives instructions for younger widows. He doesn't want them to remain idle. Their husband has died. Now what should they do? 1 Timothy 5, verses 14 and 15. He says, therefore... I want younger widows to get married. Bear children. There's our word. Bear children. Keep house. and Give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. So here's a, a somewhat similar passage. It's dealing with women's roles. Bearing children is mentioned. It's in close proximity to their other roles of motherhood, womanhood, the family, the home. And furthermore, dedication to this role is needed for what? For a type of protection. Protection from the snare of the devil who, from the beginning, has been seeking to subvert God's ordained roles for men and women. That's quite interesting because in our passage in 1 Timothy 2, the preceding verse referenced that. The deception of Eve by the devil. You go back to chapter 2. It spawns a question here about verse 15. You know, this term saved. Well, it also has an object, like save from what? What is, what is the threat? Could it be saved from the devil? This term again, sozo, it's true. Paul ordinarily uses this term to refer to our spiritual salvation. He teaches often we are saved from the wrath of God by the agent of faith. But that is not the only meaning of this word. It has a range of meaning, and the original meaning was uh, used to refer to just being physically preserved from harm, from danger, from a threat. You might say you're saved from shipwreck. Acts 27, 28 says several times Paul and his companions were saved from that shipwreck. Same word, it means they were physically delivered. So this term does not always refer to spiritual salvation in the New Testament. It's well within its range of meaning for Paul to be referring to a physical preservation from some threat. That's why the NASB translates this as women will be preserved, not saved, preserved through childbearing. So it's possible. So we can ask, does Paul have in mind women being preserved from some harm, some threat? And if so, what, what would the threat be? Well, just starting in 1 Timothy, there's, there's a thread that runs throughout. In writing this letter, Paul is very concerned that Timothy guards the gospel and guards his people 
lest they turn aside from the truth and fall away. He doesn't want them falling prey to deception, whether it comes from false teachers or the devil. And so there's all these warnings throughout 1st and 2nd Timothy. Chapter 3, verse 6, elders must not be new converts, lest they fall into the condemnation of the devil. We already read chapter 5, verse 15, where younger widows are warned. Some were already going astray following Satan. Chapter 6, 9 and 10, he, he says those who want to get rich fall into a snare, trap, and temptation. The closing verses of the whole letter, chapter 6, 20 and 21, he warns against false teaching by which some have gone astray from the faith. It's the same in 2 Timothy, same in most of Paul's letters. He's often warning against the, the threat of deception and often Satan's deception, which is a real threat of stumbling to believers. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, he urges married couples not to deprive one another that Satan may not tempt them. Ephesians 4.27, he urges believers to resolve their anger, not give the devil an opportunity. Then, of course, you have Ephesians 6, where he says a lot about believers standing firm against the schemes of the devil. So, with all this in mind, would it make sense in 1 Timothy 2.15 for Paul to be saying women will be preserved or kept safe from the threat of the devil through childbearing. How would that work? Well, many views of this passage do not believe and view childbirth as being merely giving birth. But see here an example of a literary device called synecdoche. That's just where a part stands in place of the whole. So in other words, Paul is he's really summing up the entirety of a woman's role by referring to one prominent part of that role, childbearing. But he really has in mind just motherhood or womanhood. This God-ordained role for women is something he talked about in chapter 5, something he spells out in Titus 2. For example, Titus 2, 4 through 5, he says, Young women are to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So could it be that as women embrace their God-given role, they will be preserved or kept safe from Satan's deception. Is that what Paul means? Yes, I believe that is what Paul means. Remember, this was the exact point Paul made in chapter 5 regarding young widows. Again, 5.14, he says, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. And that would be by following the world. Also, let's get in the context. This view is the only one that, that satisfies the context of 1 Timothy 2. In 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, Paul is discussing the roles of men and women, remember, in the church. We're talking about in the church. He only gives men one verse, verse 8. Women get verses 9 through 15. That's likely because false teachers were subverting the role of women. We know elsewhere in Timothy, they were advocating against marriage. Now, we already looked at verse 12. Where in the church assembly, women are not to teach or exercise authority over men. It's not their role. He's talking about roles here. That's the role of headship. That role was given to qualified men. Then in verses 13 14, Paul gives two justifications for that prohibition. In verse 13, he goes to the created order 
Adam was created first, then Eve. This is his pre-fall reason. Headship, I mean, that was God's design from the beginning. Male headship was God's design. Then verse 14, he gives his post-fall reason. He says, basically, Eve was deceived, not Adam. Look, Paul's not trying to get Adam off the hook for his leadership failure. Elsewhere, he attributes all of our sin problem to humanity's head, Adam. That's Romans chapter 5. But he's making the point that the fall came about by Eve usurping headship by violating her role. And that, in turn, came about through Satan's devices, through his temptations. Why do you think in the garden Satan approached Eve and not Adam? He bypassed the head, Adam, because from the beginning, his goal was to sow discord and disorder among humanity. You realize in that first temptation, he wasn't just attacking the word of God, as we often point out. He was attacking God's ordained roles for men and women. It's a weak point. You can chastise Eve for listening to the voice of the serpent. But you realize later, God chastises Adam for what? Genesis 3.17, for listening to the voice of his wife. Adam bears his own guilt for abdicating his leadership. But the point is, disorder and ruin come about when these God-given roles are reversed or abandoned, a fact which Satan will take advantage of whenever he can. And really, to make matters worse, the curse of Genesis 3.16 means that there's now a fallen proclivity for what? For women to usurp their husband's authority. Remember, God said to the women as a result, he says, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. But now in this fallen, cursed world, men will wield their headship selfishly and wickedly. And meanwhile, women will try and take it from them. This is going to result in strife and conflict and division and a host of suffering and trouble, such as the, the, the problem of our fallen nature now. You, you throw in Satan's schemes into that mix knowing how easy it is for men and women to divide. And just look, all relationships between men and women are a minefield. But there is hope in the church because in salvation, we're rightly restored to God and to one another. And we can stand firm against Satan's devices. And so verse 15 here is a word of hope for women. You see, Eve was not saved or preserved from harm at the fall. She was deceived and she fell and suffered harm. Why? Well, because she left her domain under her husband's headship and as a result became easy prey for Satan. And ever since, women desire to usurp their husband's authority, take his role, go outside God's created order, all to ruinous results. But the point is, how can women in the church today avoid the same fall? They can be preserved by childbearing, which stands in place of their whole role. The meaning is that by accepting their God-ordained roles, which puts their focus on marriage, the family, and the home, they're guarded against the evil one's deceptions. You realize Satan's plan is still to upend God's design and sow conflict among people. And the tightest grouping there is, husband and wife. But as women refuse to buy the lie of what it means to be a woman, 
the lie that they can only be fulfilled by essentially becoming men. If they can see the glory of womanhood and motherhood, if they submit to God's created order and devote themselves to the home, they will find protection from the schemes of the devil and avoid ruin. And they must do this all the while maintaining, verse 15, faith, love, sanctity, self-restraint. And so in conclusion, as Kostenberger says, quote, 1 Timothy 2.15 thus turns out to be Paul's prescription for women as a lesson learned from the scenario of the fall described in the previous verse, end quote. You see, both creation and the fall are given as reasons for women not to have men's roles in the home and in the church. But look, don't buy Satan's lie that women need to take these roles to be equal to men in value or worth. That's not true. And don't buy the lie that they need these roles to be happy or fulfilled or glorifying to God. That's not true. You probably know these are some of the biggest lies in our society today, in our culture, and it has not led to human flourishing. We're nearly out of time, but I want to squeeze in one question because it's related. Someone else asked this. This is a continuation, really. Question six. You know, what are the main qualities of the ideal woman from Proverbs 31? And how has feminism led women further away from these qualities? What are the main qualities of the ideal woman from Proverbs 31? And how has feminism led women further away from these qualities? Now, we don't have time to give a full, satisfying answer to this question. But in brief, there were many excellent things about the early women's rights movement in America. For sure, they addressed many injustices and abuses of authority in our society, none of which were advocated by the Bible. Women should be treated with full respect. They are due equal worth and equal rights. Of course, we would believe that. But as you know, feminism didn't stop in the 20s. It became quite radical today, quite godless, radically opposed to traditional roles, i.e. biblical roles. Realize what this means. If this interpretation of 1 Timothy 2.15 is correct, that women avoid Satan's deception by cherishing God's role for them in the home. That means today, radical feminism has basically opened the floodgates inviting in Satan's deception. Just think of the main message of feminism today. It's not about equality for women. It's well beyond equality for women. We, we all support equality for women. They want equity for women, meaning women must have every role of men in society and more. But you see, there's this great irony that they teach that for women to be valued or fulfilled, they have to essentially become men. Right? They, they trample underfoot the unique glory of womanhood and tell women that happiness only comes when you, you, you act like a man. You've got to dress like a man, talk like a man, act like men. Of course, most of all, this means denying motherhood. I mean, just forget about kids. Your career can't wait. Like, men don't have to sideline their career to have kids. Why should women? And if, if you have to have kids, I'm just put them in daycare. Or, you know what? Better yet, flip the script. Make the man stay home and watch the kids. You go pursue life outside family and the home. You'll finally be happy and free. That's the message. Does this work? Does this lead to fulfillment? Does this lead to human flourishing? 
Think about women, try as hard as, as they might to deny God's created order, but when they do have kids, all these instincts kick in. And I've witnessed this over and over, even among women who were vehement, I will never have kids. I don't want kids. But look, maternity is in their created nature. And so they start wrestling with guilt because there's a part of them in their bones that does not want to sacrifice the glory of motherhood for a job, for a career. I mean, there's something special about motherhood. It is truly unique to their essence. It's part of their glory. Is it really more fulfilling to trade that for a job? And really, don't forget, remember like God cursed man's labor. Labor is hard. It's toilsome. It's futile. Do you think that like life outside the home in the workforce is some magically fulfilling experience for men? Many women find out the hard way. They just traded their special glory for a crummy job. It is the saddest thing. And this rebellion has consequences. Do you think American society has improved since these changes have been embraced these past hundred years? Would you see moral improvement or decay by God's standard? We have motherless homes. We have absent fathers. That's its own issue. But why do you think each new generation is becoming increasingly Godless, disobedient, disrespectful, rebellious. I don't know about you, but I see Satan's schemes written all over the decay in our land in the past hundred years. Look, we need a word of balance, though, as we finish up. That balance is found in Proverbs 31, which gives us the description of the excellent wife. We don't have time to really look at it, but it says her worth is far above jewels. There's a whole lot to this chapter. If I can just emphasize one aspect The Bible does not paint the picture of women as mere baby factories. That their purpose is to cook, vacuum, have babies. And that's it. Not the case. Look, God does establish certain priorities for women. And yes, their priority is in the home. We can quickly add here that for single women, they have the blessed opportunity to care for God's household. But it's about priorities. And under God's order, women are directed to first prioritize the home. You see that in Proverbs 31, her motivation. It's not greed. It's not personal gain. It's her family, her household. She does what she does for their good. Verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household. You read these verses on your own, you'll find they describe actually a a picture of an amazingly industrious woman. She finds plenty of work and activity outside the home, but is never divorced from her priority of the home. She does all she does for the family. She cooks, but she also invests. She makes fine clothes for her family, but she also sells some of that for profit. It goes on, but look, God, God's ordered role for women is not simple homekeeping. It's busy, it's active, multi-layered. It's beautiful, it's thrilling, it's essential. Women like this, you read this on your own, women like this, women like Proverbs 31, women like Titus 2, who fear the Lord, and submit to God's will for their lives. Let's just say, they shall be praised. The lesson here is just, in all three of these final questions, just don't buy the lie of Satan, which is now our culture's lie. Essentially, that women have to be men to find purpose, happiness, fulfillment. They must take men's roles from God. Look, don't, the only way that happens is if you disparage the role of womanhood and motherhood. Don't do that. Don't despise or disparage 
the glory of womanhood or motherhood, which Scripture does indeed so highly support, and which we likewise at this church highly support and value and cherish as well. Let's make sure we show honor to our women as fellow heirs of the grace of life, and that we praise them in the gates for their godliness. Our time is up. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we exalt you for your word this morning. We read it. We have questions, but it's clear. It is filled with answers. It's there for us to search and seek and mine for as gold and and precious jewels. We thank you for your clear word. In it, you reveal yourself to us beyond the heavens, beyond the trees, beyond creation. We see who you are revealed in your word, this, this triune God, three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, the one true God. We exalt you for who you are, for how you've revealed yourself, that your perfections, your glories, your attributes, we see, we marvel. We, we can never hold them fully within our grasp, but we thank, we're thankful you've enabled us to, to grasp what we can and help us to, to know you, to not take for granted the knowledge of God, but to, to seek you. Like, like Moses prayed, Lord, show us your face, show us your glory, and may we seek you more and worship you. We also thank you for the, the glory of women you have created. You made us two, two in one, two that become one flesh. We thank you for all of our women, though, and, and what you say about the unique glory of womanhood, motherhood, and the role you give them in life and society, in the home and family, in the church. It's a special thing. We don't want to take it for granted. We know, we all know well, our society believes pretty much the exact opposite now. And it will lead to persecution, ridicule, rejection for us. What can we say? We're bound to Christ, our Lord, his will. But we know that the value, that the, the true fulfillment, the happiness that comes when we live life your way, your ways are good. Your word is good. Your roles are good. Help us to embrace what you have revealed. Uh, and we see our own flourishing. Pray for our land that they would come back and return, repent to your ways. As for us, as for us in our households, may we serve the Lord forever, putting him and his word first in our lives. As in Christ's name we pray. Amen.